I find it remarkable when, uh, when I'm on retreat how quickly we kind of dive in to, to silence, to uh, a depth of inner presence. It's, it's both individually and collectively something shifts and there's a, a kind of a, an energy that we inhabit together which is uh, profound. And it, it feels kind of timeless. Um, maybe not always to everyone, maybe, <laughs> maybe you get into an awareness of time passing if your knee is hurting <laughs> during a sit, <laughs> but, but there is, maybe you touch into it, this kind of quality of timelessness, and then, and then it comes to an end. So, and somehow we move back, at least in some level, into ordinary time, where we're going from one thing to another. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes we can continue to inhabit some of that uh, place of depth and timelessness at the same time. So check into your body now. We've, we've moved from a real focus on vegan retreat. Janet's given the closing talk, thinking about going home. There's reading materials, even though we haven't begun engaging in uh, conversation together. But uh, moving out of silence. So check into the body. What's, what's the quality of energy in the body? How are the energies moving? Where? So this is always available to you, this inner refuge of the body. can always remember the instruction of tuning into the stillness, even in all the movement and activity of life. You can take a moment and stop and find the stillness, the inner stillness. Even in all the noise, you can find the silence within which the sounds come and go. The silence between the words, the silence between the thoughts. We can allow for more silence between our words, perhaps, so that we're listening more and not getting ready to speak until the person we're listening to has completed what they're saying. We can find the space, the space around emotions, so that they have room to move through us instead of contracting around them, letting go of the stories that the mind creates, just being present in the body with emotions, whether they're pleasant, beautiful qualities, listening to them, or painful, difficult emotions, just listening to those also, 
being present with them, giving them space to move. The body's always with us until it's not. But for this, the duration of our life, the body is with us. The body is there. It's a. In, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the precious human body endowed with many blessings and opportunities. And in our, in our, for, for most of us in our lives, we do have many blessings. We're not living in a war zone. We have enough to eat. We have some degree of health, even if our health is not perfect. We have some degree of health to be, and strength to practice the Dharma. We've heard the Dharma. We've heard this teaching for liberation. It's a great opportunity. And most of us have at least some degree of leisure time. We're not always needing to walk to the next well and carry back water or not in a constant uh, survival mode. So these are, these are named in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as the blessings and opportunities of human birth. So it's really an occasion for gratitude, a lot of gratitude. So in in gratitude, we we step forward into this moment, and we see this moment with fresh eyes, and uh, with and with an open heart, and uh, an appreciation for what is there. So this, this time of instruction is always, at the end of retreat, is always focused on <clears throat> how do we carry our practice into our daily life? How do we, perhaps, perhaps there's been an insight or something that you've, you've uh, glimpsed or touched, even for a moment, which has uh, been an opening for you. And... And so, you know, how can you live from that space in your daily life? There are many aspects to, and many answers. Um, One important thing is to Make space in your life for practice. Continue to practice. So when we, when we take time, when we make the time just to be, just to be, we're, we're very much, most of us anyway, in the mode of doing, 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 doing. And, and there's a, a quality of loving ourselves, and um, and to to drop into that <clears throat> presence. There's we need to just uh, just stop sometimes and be still. It's not that we can't bring presence into our activity, but as we're, as we're opening to that and deepening in that, we need to um, cultivate the stillness uh, to, to just uh, drop in to that. Stillness of body, stillness of mind. <clears throat> so, so that's a strong encouragement to to really uh, make that 
space in your lives for a daily practice. And if you miss a day, you know, don't feel so guilty and get down on yourself and just, you know, the next day, pick it up again. Another important aspect of carrying this into our daily lives, into our active lives, is um, in some way connecting with a practice community. So some of you are fortunate that there are sitting groups that you can go once a week or every couple of weeks, whenever you can. And, uh, and you can be with people who are on this journey. Because, you know, as we've mentioned a few times during this retreat, some of the values that we cultivate in this practice are countercultural. They're going against the stream. You know, they're not oriented uh, to seeing ourselves as consumers. Um, it's we're questioning conventions. You know, it's uh, we're we're cultivating a presence in the heart, which is an attitude of authenticity, in which we come from <coughs> what is true, what is honest, what is real uh, for us in the moment, in a way which is kind and uh, empathetic, non-harming. So, you know, always that's the precepts also, the ethical, the ethical guideline of non-harming or ahimsa is, is also a part of how do we bring this into our daily lives. So you might be curious to find out more about these, these five training precepts. Um, and there's lots which can be read, and, uh, and you might just want to explore what does non-harming mean to you? And kind of in a more personal way, explore it. So when we, when we come into presence, in the body, uh, we are moving into a space of unity. So when we're out of the stories in our minds, the judgments, even though we may hear those stories going in the mind and the judgments may arise, if, if there's the quality of presence, if there's mindfulness, so mindfulness is a word that we use a lot, um, uh, we see it. And we see, we see, okay, there's judgment arising. So it's a thought. The thought came up in the mind. It doesn't mean that that judgment is the truth. It's just a judgment arising from causes and conditions. There may be some truth in it, um, in terms of a feeling response to somebody, or to something that's happening, or something in the in the world, in the environment. But um, but a judgment is closed, right? Open and shut case. You put something in a box. So, so we can honor our felt responses to people, to places, to different sets of conditions, and still keep an open mind, a kind of a, a curiosity. That's, that goes so much uh, for our relationships. Our, uh, the relationships 
in our lives, the people that we see regularly at home, at work, in our community? You know, do we think that we know them? Do we think that we have them figured out? So when we are in presence, we are attuned to our own subjectivity, to that, that uh, equality of just uh, the inner um, engagement with moment-by-moment experience through our senses. And, and each one, every one of us, has that profound subjectivity. And, and so, just as we cannot know ourselves what our next thought will be, what our next feeling will be, what our next um, desire will be, or emotional uh, state will be, um, so we don't know for the other any, any better, certainly, probably much less, what, how they will respond. So, so to be, even with the difficult relationships, can we see each person with fresh eyes each time? You know, to, to really remember, to bring that freshness, the, the curiosity, the interest. <clears throat> There's a beautiful practice in um, uh, the Bodhisattva's way of life, uh, which is a Tibetan Buddhist text uh, by Shantideva. And... Um, and it's a practice called exchanging self for others. And it kind of goes like this. You see somebody and there's a judgment about that person. Maybe that person is kind of hard to communicate with. Uh, maybe that person has some difficult behaviors. And uh, and so you just listen. First, you start to start listening to your thoughts. Uh, just tune into the body and feel the reactivity of the body. You know. And so the thoughts might be: that person is so difficult and demanding. That person is so um, it's so unreasonable. I'm not like that. You know, that's, that's really different from how I am. You know, I'm, and as you begin to kind of hear it, really hear it, you know, maybe a little doubt begins to arise <laughs> <laughs> about the clarity of, uh, or the cut and the black and whiteness of that. And then, so then there's a kind of an empathy in which uh, you imaginatively place yourself in their life as much as you can, as much as you know it. You know, think about, well, what are the demands of this person's job, this person's life? Maybe if you know something about what they're dealing with in their life, what they experienced in their life. And somehow those divisions begin to melt a little bit. And, uh, and you can actually just, in your imagination, you know, try to feel into a little bit what, what's, it, what's it like to be that person? What, what might it feel like? You know, and um, 
And so we can, it's, it just softens the heart. So maybe if we have a little bit of fluidity, a little bit more wateriness uh, in the way that we can be with that person, maybe it can change the tone of the interaction. I remember Joseph Goldstein talking once about uh, being in an argument with somebody. You know, he was, he'd gotten into some kind of discussion and it was getting heated and, and they were both sort of hardening. And then something just, you know, he just woke up for a moment and he and just the phrase came into his mind relax the heart and he just took a breath and he allowed his heart to relax and he responded in a different way and it changed the whole tone of the interaction so so be curious about that you know, can can we do that sometimes? So, you know, it and and you know, don't necessarily expect miracles, but but uh, it, it can sometimes really change just the feeling tone, even if it changes our own experience, our own the way that we are and the way that we emerge from that um, conversation or interaction, it can, uh, that, that in itself is great benefit. Because then we are able to, you know, move into everything else that we're in contact with not vibrating and reverberating uh, with anger or or resentment or uh, or fear. Another another thing is uh, that I would would say is study the Dharma. You know there are so many great books. Somebody asked a question about books. We have a book list on our um, on our website. Some wonderful books. Uh, a book I always recommend to people who are kind of just beginning to explore Buddhism is Jack Cornfield's A Path with Heart. It's uh, it's a wonderful book. Um, and then there's uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, which is a classic by Bhante Gunaratana. So, so explore the, the uh, book list. There's, um, uh, you know, there's a lot there. There are, there's a great resource many people know about Dharma Seed. So you can access Dharma Seed through the True North Insight website. I love to listen to Dharma talks. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just something about the speaker that comes through and it's, it feels personal and I just love to take it in through, through the hearing. Um, and, uh, and so there's, you know, through the True North Insight website, there's the True North Insight teachers and then there's also access to the whole Dharma Seed website uh, with all the the many, many teachers in the Insight tradition from the Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock and many other centers as well. So, um, so those are ways that you can feed your Dharma understanding. You can help develop and grow your, uh, just your Dharma understanding. It gives you, it's, um, it's the new conditions of the mind and the body to, to uh, enable us to choose differently, perhaps. Uh, let go of addictive behaviors, uh, 
you know, recognize where, what is the direction of happiness and what is the direction of suffering, you know. So it's in skillful action, it's in renunciation, generosity. Those are the directions of happiness. The directions of suffering are, you know, uh, expressing, uh, uh, well, causing harm, you know, lashing out in anger, um, grasping, uh, hoarding, um, withdrawing in, in fear. There's nothing wrong with withdrawing for solitude. Solitude is beautiful. But when we withdraw in fear, then um, we are uh, creating more separateness, sense of separateness. So, so it's it's so interesting that the things that create more suffering is that which intensifies our sense of separateness. The things that create more happiness are those things that bring us into more sense of connection with life. <clears throat> compassion. Um, compassion is a very uh, central teaching of the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. And, um, and so we, we often turn away from the pain of others because we don't like the way we it feels to be present with others' pain. That's why we turn away from our own pain, of course. We, we don't like the unpleasant feeling of, of turning toward our pain. So in practice, we turn toward our own pain and, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, practice to also open the heart to the pain around us even if we can't do anything to to fix it you know and, and usually we can't usually that's life but just to to say either silently or if we can aloud I care about your pain, I care about what's happening, you know, I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you, I'm present with you, or be present. Um, so so this, this compassion, this reaching out in, in compassion, really does, you know, as I was uh, guiding in the in the meditation last night, the guided meditation about breathing in and allowing that breathing in of the suffering of others to dissolve that sheath, that protectiveness around the heart. You know, just opening the heart. There's a couple of poems that I, I have that I want to read. And, uh, and one of them is called I'm Nobody, Who Are You? by Emily Dickinson. So, so part of what creates suffering in our world, for our own suffering, is that this solidification around a sense of self, you know, how... There's a there's a this wanting wanting to be recognized wanting to be um, received wanting to be affirmed wanting 
gratification. Uh, so it's lovely when people recognize us and when people, you know, just spontaneously say, uh, thank you, that really touched me, or, or great job, that really was, you know, fantastic what you did, it really, you know, but there's a, there's a saying in the, uh, in this mind training, seven-point mind training, different slogans, and one of them right at the end is, don't expect applause. <laughs> Just do what you do, you know, for the love of it. And, and uh, you know, and if, if people don't say, well, that's great, well, that's okay. Um, anyway, this... This is a a lovely little poem. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. (laughs) How public, like a frog, to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog. So, so if we're so, so intent on croaking our name. <laughs> and then this is a lovely poem, um, which I think is... Uh, so beautifully expressing how to live uh, in presence. It's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Hokusai was a, I think, an 18th or 19th century Japanese watercolorist. So he's, maybe you've seen that wonderful Japanese watercolor, the tsunami, the big wave. That's one of his very famous ones. Uh, also M- Mount, Mount Meru, I think. Um, and uh, so he's, and he just, he clearly, if you look at his paintings, he sees in such a profound way. Um, so, so this is Roger Keyes reflecting on Uh, what Hokusai says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, keep looking. Stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says that every one of us is a child. Every one is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says that every one of us is frightened. He says that every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish 
It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. I'd like to open up to any questions you may have about bringing your practice into your life. Because really, <coughs> practice, practice is not about sitting on a cushion or a bench or a chair an hour a day. That's, that's part of practice, but our life is our practice. And our practice is our whole life. So, um, so sometimes people say, you know, well, I haven't been practicing, and they mean I haven't been sitting. And uh, and it's good to get back to sitting, you know. But then they may say, you know, I've really been trying to be generous in my life. I've really been trying to be patient. I've really, uh, I've really been noticing how sometimes I have lost my temper, and I, I. Um, you know, and I'm I'm really working with that, just kind of letting the anger subside before I speak. So all of these things are are how we live our practice. And and uh, I also, you know, want to invite you to ask any questions to David about yoga and, and daily practice as well. Because over the years when I've studied yoga, it's been try to modify the pose to um, to fit your needs at the time. You know, like either get the pose, or if you can't get the pose, there's modifications. And this time in retreat, um, sometimes when we had you know a walking meditation, if I had to ring the bell or something, and I didn't actually do the walking meditation, I walked outside. I went for a walk outside, so I kind of modified it to fit custom fit it instead of the orthodoxy. And so I'm just wondering, where is that sweet spot between the orthodoxy and custom design before we kind of lose the shape of it? You know, do we just pick ourselves? Do we just do everything to suit ourselves? Or how much do we have to stick with the orthodoxy of the structure? And how much can we customize? Yeah. Uh, it, I guess to a certain extent it depends on the retreat as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I encourage people to, um, uh, to work with the form of the structure of the retreat and also to listen to, you know, what their own, um, you know, what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart, what they feel they need to do, you know, sometimes... Uh, sometimes people 
uh, something's coming up where there's there's an intensity and you don't want to be in the hall for a particular sitting you want to have some solitude and and kind of just tune into that process I think that's okay I've certainly done that on retreats and then and then there's there's also the structure which you know is a great support it is it does provide a a container we we use the word container to uh, to talk about this because you know you know there's not just one retreat happening here there's you know there's 30 retreats happening here uh, each one of us is in a, in our own process so so I, I don't have a, a, an answer for you. It's just to be, to, you know, maybe there's a respect for the, the, the container of the retreat, um, which, is, which comes from, you know, many generations of uh, retreats, and yet, you know, without the... Re- Rigidity of feeling, you know, if there if there feels like it's a somehow it's just like in yoga. If you feel like you're straining something, or stretching something too far, or or it feels too tight, or you know, just to find your space. Um, and uh, if you want to add to that, I'll just I'll just speak to the yoga. Um, in terms of practicing yoga in daily life, you know, what I've found helpful is, in terms of the structure, would be to have a set time of day, you know, when, when, when you can practice, say, in the morning, early morning, or later in the evening, and maybe a place, a set place in your house that's clear of, you know, furniture <laughs> and debris, <laughs> Uh, maybe create a little altar for yourself, you know, um, and place uh, some uh, items that are symbolic of uh, your spiritual practice. And that's maybe that's the structure, right? Um, and then from there, practicing according to, you know, really listening deeply. Um, there are practice changes from day to day, from season to season. You know, some days we wake up feeling like we're just full of energy. (laughs) It's like, okay, let's do some, let's do five sun salutations, you know. And then other days, the body just feels like, oh, I just want to get on the floor and maybe just, you know, just do some very simple, gentle stretches and, you know, and and then sit, you know. I usually start with yoga and 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 then I sit. So I think really listening to what the body is calling for on any particular day. And then again, the seasons. You know, I typically find spring and summer where there's more energy. And then at this time of year, my yoga practice is kind of more waning. And, and I'm sitting longer, you know. So, but it's different for everybody. So, you know, just wanted to speak to that. Um, this is my third retreat, and two of them that was a combination of yoga and meditation, and one there was no yoga, and I really enjoyed the yoga. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the combination of the effect of combining yoga and meditation on either yoga or meditation. What's the effect as opposed to doing just one of the two? Uh, well, I'll very simply... Uh, you know, the body sitting for long periods of time, the body muscles can contract and uh, the body can become stiff. And the yoga is so helpful in, in uh, stretching that out, uh, loosening, opening. And that shifts the energy in the body. So, and then also, uh, one of the things that happens is that as, and it's, it's energetic and it's, it's connected to the body, as we sit and the mind becomes more quiet, um, things that we have been turning away from 
turning our attention away from grief, um, longing, uh, sadness, fear, anxiety, resentment. You know, all, all of these things can come up. The patterns can come up. There's a, a saying by a Thai teacher, Thai forest monk, Ajahn Chah. Uh, he talked about when you sit by a still forest pool. And if you sit very quietly, you know, all the different creatures will gradually come in out of the woods, <laughs> you know, and you'll see them. So there's, you know, the fierce creatures and some of the beautiful, timid little creatures. And, and sometimes you'll even see some, you know, magical kind of creatures that you never even imagined existed. So, um, so that happens. And, and some of the more painful things, when we're doing the yoga, they act, it actually helps them to work through because there is a way in which, you know, as we, as I spoke about with the, in the relaxation exercise, that it's a way in which we hold so many things, so many patterns in the body, uh, formations, you know, reactive patterns and so on. We hold them in the body. And so as we're doing the meditation, maybe things are surfacing into awareness and and then we can stretch, and and it helps it to move through. So, uh, so that's the way that it impacts on meditation. Do you want to speak about how meditation impacts on yoga? Yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I, I don't like to think of it so much as yoga meditation. Yeah. <laughs> Two separate compartments, right? right. Uh, more like they they both flow into each other. Um, so we can we can use our yoga practice to if we start with yoga and then sit, then you can use the yoga practice to you know loosen up your body, get the joints moving, um, get the breath moving, and and then you might find um, I surely do that when I do some yoga and then sit, I just find it easier to sit. My mind is. Um, I can drop in a little more easily, probably because the I've had some, an opportunity to release some tension that I've been carrying throughout the day, or and then it's just it's it's just easier to uh, to sit. You can also experiment with sitting first and then doing a yoga practice. Um, that's also very interesting because if by sitting say say thirty minutes or so, um, you you. You, you generate some stillness, some quiet, and then it's really interesting to see how the yoga practice, your movement practice, emerges emerges from from that space of, of stillness and quiet. So I'd encourage you to all to, you know, if you have a yoga and meditation practice, maybe if if you typically do yoga first and then meditation, maybe maybe switch it around and see how, you know, how one informs the other, and uh, you know how these two. Um, great technologies, uh, you know, just they work so beautifully together. Uh, yeah. A question about breaking patterns in um, in public, you know, and if you have any suggestions, either yoga or meditation, or hiding from a day and you realize that you're getting stuck, anxiety comes up. Um, it's not possible to drop your knees and sit for a while. Um, any suggestions? Yeah. Okay, start. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while. <laughs> so, um, actually, in Boston, I, I lead a chair yoga practice. Different communities. I've worked with uh, I've worked with the Boston Marathon survivors. I've, I've worked with vets who are not able to get down on the floor, missing a limb. Sort of thing. Uh, I've worked with uh, people who uh, work in a corporate environment, and chair yoga is wonderful. 
You know, I encourage you to, um, there's all kinds of stuff online, you know, you can sort of see what people are doing. Um, and so it's just great to um, use the chair, the office chair, if you're at home, uh, you know, you know, like in your living room even, and, and just, you know, just do some movements. And, you know. um, it's just uh, just a wonderful way to drop in when you know when it's when it's feeling like it, the day's overwhelming. There's just so much coming up. It's just a way of breaking free, like you say, from patterns of reactivity. Um, and uh, you know, just ten minutes, twists, and you know, side bends, and forward bends. There's a lot you can do on a chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, reactivity comes up. You know, somebody says something critical. Um, I mean, even when you're driving. <laughs> uh, and um, just turn toward the reactivity. So, so if, if it's in the moment and you're in a conversation, um, you don't need to respond or react <laughs> right away. You know, if, if, it's, if it feels really hot for you, uh, uh, just, you know, breathe. Find uh, find some time to to just turn inward and breathe breathe through it. You know, be present with the intensity of reactivity. And you know, I uh, I I gave this image. I was in one of the small groups. Um, an image I like is that uh, you know these old wind up toys that we used to. Have I don't know if everything everything's digital these days. But we used to have wind-up toys in in the olden days, and uh, and 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 you'd so so the you know so that you wind up the toy and and then you'd put it down on the ground and it would go and bang into the walls and bang into the furniture and and it's the you know our our reactivity is like that wound up you know that energy the energy the pattern that's triggered. Is like that wound up uh, energy in the toy, but if you, you know, just hold the toy in your hand and just give it space, it just discharges itself, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and so you just, you know, you just hold it, and so it's like give yourself, your heart, your body that space just to discharge, you know, like, you know, just stay grounded, stay still, stay breathing. And so it means you don't cause harm in the moment, which perpetuates (coughs) the suffering. You also learn something very, very important, that there's a a beginning and an end to the intensity of emotion. So when we, when we really develop that insight through the staying present with our feelings and we see, okay, this anger, you know, if I am just stay with it and feel it in the body, it actually moves through me like a storm system passing through. You know, and, um, and then you can respond instead of react and and say okay so do i want to sp- speak to this person do i want to do i want to let it go you know do i want to uh do something else so you know the, the buddha said in one of his discourses that he, he was saying that what before his enlightenment when you know, he was just beginning. He well, I don't know if he was beginning, but anyway, he was he was working with the arising of desire and 
anger and, and he said when I'd feel it arising within me he said I would just stop you know even if I was in the middle of walking somewhere I would just stop and turn my attention inward and feel the arising be present with the arising and passing away and he said one moment of seeing the arising and passing away of emotional states, mental states, uh, thoughts, sensations. He said, for practice, that is hundreds of thousands of times more powerful for our spiritual freedom than, you know, days and days of um, doing good acts or or uh, or even practicing loving kindness it says seeing into the arising and passing away is key to our liberation so so that's you know that's that's practice that's how practice is in life that we just we notice and when we're attuned to the body you know we don't get caught up in the story you know, or if we do not for so long, you know, where he shouldn't have said that, he shouldn't have done that, he, that was wrong, that was bad, so such a terrible person, you know, and it's all out there, and, um, you know, we just bring it in to what is our own experience. I've always been a pretty die-hard atheist until I started doing more reading in Buddhism and doing practice. And uh, it's awakened some different ideas for me that are not always pleasant, but, but in a good line. The, in, one of my med- in one of my practices, I was thinking about actually the death of my father, and uh, that was sort of the first time I'd seen really a person that I knew die. And I've always seen it before, like a light switch. They just die and it's off. But his dying was sort of a more personal process. And in my uh, practice, I came up with the idea of, of a compost pile and how all the things go into it. And if you've ever opened a compost pile in the winter, it is hot hot, 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 and the steam just comes off this, and it's be frozen on the outside, but it is hot. So the idea that all of these things that have come into it have created this new sort of energy. So I could start to see how the bodies and all of that go back into the earth in different ways, and again, that energy starts to be created. I don't know though what about the actual essence or spirit of a person I know some reading on reincarnation and struggling but I'm wondering in a synopsis if you could take me any further on that the, it was your talk last night on body and the, uh, the uh, fluidness of it that got me thinking further on it well, I guess I would say, you wanted a short answer, I'd say, just don't know. <laughs> you don't need to form a belief. Just be present with your experience. See what opens for you. When people would ask the Buddha, is there a God? he would remain silent. Some Buddhists say that the Buddha said there is no God. He never said that. When, when, when people would ask him, there were certain things that when people asked him, he just remained silent. And so, so that silence perhaps points to something which is beyond words. So, having said that, let's sit for a bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.